Section 18 of Clotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clotel by William Wells Brown. Chapter 18. The Liberator. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created free and equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Declaration of American Independence The death of the parson was the commencement of a new era in the history of his slaves. Only a little more than eighteen years of age, Georgiana could not expect to carry out her own wishes in regard to the slaves, although she was sole heir to her father's estate. There were distant relations whose opinions she had at least to respect, and both law and public opinion in the state were against any measure of emancipation that she might think of adopting unless, perhaps, she might be permitted to send them to Liberia. Her uncle in Connecticut had already been written to, to come down and aid in settling up the estate. He was a northern man, but she knew him to be a tight-fisted Yankee, whose whole counsel would go against liberating the Negroes. Yet there was one way in which the thing could be done. She loved Carlton, and she knew well that he loved her. She read it in his countenance every time they met, yet the young man did not mention his wishes to her. There were many reasons why he should not. In the first place, her father was just deceased, and it seemed only right that he should wait a reasonable time. Again, Carlton was poor, and Georgiana was possessed of a large fortune, and his high spirit would not, for a moment, allow him to place himself in a position to be regarded as a fortune hunter. The young girl hinted, as best she could, at the probable future, but all to no purpose. He took nothing to himself. True, she had read much of woman's rights, and had even attended a meeting, while at the North, which had been called to discuss the wrongs of woman, but she could not nerve herself up to the point of putting the question to Carlton, although she felt sure that she should not be rejected. She waited, but in vain. At last, one evening, she came out of her room rather late, and was walking on the piazza for fresh air. She passed near Carlton's room, and heard the voice of Sam. The negro had just come in to get the young man's boots, and had stopped, as he usually did, to have some talk. "'I wish,' said Sam, "'dat Massa Carlton and Miss Georgie would get married. Didn't speck we'd have a good times.' "'I don't think your mistress would have me,' replied the young man. "'What make tink dat, Massa Carlton?' "'Your mistress would marry no one, Sam, unless she loved them.' "'Den I wish she would love you, cause I tink we would have good times den.' "'All our folks is de same opinion like me,' returned the negro, and then left the room with the boots in his hands. During the conversation between the Anglo-Saxon and the African, one word had been dropped by the former that haunted the young lady the remainder of the night. "'Your mistress would marry no one unless she loved them.' That word awoke her in the morning and caused her to decide upon this import subject. Love and duty triumphed over the woman's timid nature— and that day Georgiana informed Carlton that she was ready to become his wife. The young man, with grateful tears, accepted and kissed the hand that was offered to him. The marriage of Carlton and Miss Peck was hailed with delight by both the servants in the house and the negroes on the farm. New rules were immediately announced for the working and general treatment of the slaves on the plantation. With this, Huckleby, the overseer, saw his reign coming to an end, and Snyder, the Dutch preacher, felt that his services would soon be dispensed with, 
for nothing was more repugnant to the feelings of Mrs. Carleton than the sermons preached by Snyder to the slaves. She regarded them as something intended to make them better satisfied with their condition, and more valuable as pieces of property, without preparing them for the world to come. Mrs. Carleton found in her husband a congenial spirit, who entered into all her wishes and plans for bettering the condition of their slaves. Mrs. Carleton's views and sympathies were all in favor of immediate emancipation, but then she saw, or thought she saw, a difficulty in that. If the slaves were liberated, they must be sent out of the state. This, of course, would incur additional expense, and if they left the state, where had they better go? Let's send them to Liberia, said Carleton. Why should they go to Africa any more than to the free states or to Canada? asked the wife. They would be in their native land, he answered. Is not this their native land? What right have we, more than the Negro, to the soil here, or to style ourselves Native Americans? Indeed, it is as much their home as ours, and I have sometimes thought it was more theirs. The Negro has cleared up the lands, built towns, and enriched the soil with his blood and tears, and in return he is to be sent to a country of which he knows nothing. Who fought more bravely for American independence than the blacks? A Negro by the name of Attax was the first that fell in Boston at the commencement of the Revolutionary War, and throughout the whole of the struggles for liberty in this country. The Negroes have contributed their share. In the last war with Great Britain, the country was mainly indebted to the blacks in New Orleans for the achievement of the victory at that place. And even General Jackson, the commander-in-chief, called the Negroes together at the close of the war, and addressed them in the following terms. Soldiers, when on the banks of the Mobile, I called you up to take arms, inviting you to partake the perils and glories of your white fellow citizens, I expected much from you. For I was not ignorant that you possess qualities more formidable to an invading enemy. I knew with what fortitude you could endure hunger and thirst and all the fatigues of a campaign. I knew well how you loved your native country, and that you, as well as ourselves, had to defend what man holds most dear, his parents, wife, children, and property. You have done more than I expected. In addition to the previous qualities, I before knew you to possess, I found among you a noble enthusiasm which leads to the performance of great things. Soldiers, the President of the United States shall hear how praiseworthy was your conduct in the hour of danger, and the representatives of the American people will give you the praise your exploits entitle you to. Your general anticipates them in applauding your noble ardor. And what did these noble men receive in return for their courage, their heroism? Chains and slavery. Their good deeds have been consecrated only in their own memories, who rallied with more alacrity in response to the summons of danger. If in that hazardous hour, when our homes were menaced with the horrors of war, we did not disdain to call upon the Negro to assist in repelling invasion, why should we, now that the danger is past, deny him a home in his native land? I see, said Carlton. You are right, but I fear you will have difficulty in persuading others to adopt your views. We will set the example, replied she and then hope for the best, for I feel that the people of the southern states will one day see their error. Liberty has always been our watchword, as far as profession is concerned. Nothing has been held so cheap as our common humanity on a national average. If every man had his aliquot proportion of the injustice done in this land by law and violence, the present freemen of the northern section 
would many of them commit suicide and self-defense, and would court the liberties awarded by Ali Pasha of Egypt to his subjects. Long ere this we should have tested, in behalf of our bleeding and crushed American brothers of every hue and complexion, every new constitution, custom, or practice, by which inhumanity was supposed to be upheld, the injustice and cruelty they contained, emblazoned before the great tribunal of mankind for condemnation, and the good and available power they possessed, for the relief, deliverance, and elevation of oppressed men, permitted to shine forth from under the cloud for the refreshment of the human race. Although Mr. and Mrs. Carleton felt that immediate emancipation was the right of the slave and the duty of the master, they resolved on a system of gradual emancipation, so as to give them time to accomplish their wish and to prepare the negro for freedom. Huckleby was one morning told that his services would no longer be required. The negroes, ninety-eight in number, were called together and told that the whip would no longer be used, and that they would be allowed a certain sum for every bale of cotton produced. Sam, whose long experience in the cotton field before he had been taken into the house, and whose general intelligence justly gave him the first place among the negroes on the poplar farm, was placed at their head. They were also given to understand that the money earned by them would be placed to their credit, and when it amounted to a certain sum, they should all be free. The joy with which this news was received by the slaves showed their grateful appreciation of the boon their benefactors were bestowing upon them. The house-servants were called, and told that wages would be allowed them, and what they earned set to their credit, and they too should be free. The next were the bricklayers. There were eight of these, who had passed their master two dollars per day, and boarded and clothed themselves. An arrangement was entered into them, by which the money they earned should be placed to their credit, and they too should be free, when a certain amount should be accumulated, and great was the change amongst all these people. The bricklayers had been to work but a short time before their increased industry was noticed by many. They were no longer apparently the same people. A sedateness, a care, an economy, an industry, took possession of them, to which there seemed to be no bounds but in their physical strength. They were never tired of laboring, and seemed as though they could never affect enough. They were temperate, moral, religious, setting an example of innocent, unoffending lives to the world around them which was seen and admired by all. Mr. Parker, a man who worked nearly forty slaves at the same business, was attracted by the manner in which these negroes labored. He called on Mr. Carlton some weeks after they had been acting on the new system, and offered two thousand dollars for the head workman, Jim. The offer was, of course, refused. A few days after, the same gentleman called again, and made an offer of double the sum that he had on the former occasion. Mr. Parker, finding that no money would purchase either of the negroes, said, Now, Mr. Carlton, pray tell me what is it that makes your negroes work so? What kind of people are they? I suppose, observed Carlton, that they are like other people, flesh and blood. Why, sir, continued Parker, I have never seen such people. Building as they are next door to my residence, I see and have my eye on them from morning till night. You are never there, for I have never met you, or seen you once at that building. Why, sir, I am an early riser, getting up before day, and do you think that I am not awoke every morning in my life by the noise of their trowels at work, and their singing and noise before day? And do you suppose, sir, that they stop or leave off work at sundown? No, sir, but they work as long as they can see to lay a brick, and then they carry tip brick and mortar for an hour or two afterward to be ahead of their work the next morning 
And again, sir, do you think that they walk at their work? No, sir, they run all day. You see, sir, those immensely long ladders, five stories in height, do you suppose they walk up them? No, sir, they run up and down them like so many monkeys all day long. I never saw such people as these in my life. I don't know what to make of them. Were a white man with them and over them with a whip, then I should see and understand the cause of the running and incessant labor, but I cannot comprehend it. There's something in it, sir. Great man, sir, that Jim, great man. I should like to own him. Carlton here informed Parker that their liberties depended upon their work, when the latter replied, If niggers can work so for the promise of freedom, they ought to be made to work without it. This last remark was in the true spirit of the slaveholder, and reminds us of the fact that some years since the overseer of General Wade Hampton offered the niggers under him a suit of clothes to the one that picked the most cotton in one day, and after that time that day's work was given as a task to the slaves on that plantation, and after a while was adopted by other planters. The negroes on the farm, under Massa Sam, were also working in a manner that attracted the attention of the planters round about. On the Sabbath, Mr. and Mrs. Carlton read and explained the scriptures to them, and the very great attention paid by the slaves showed plainly that they appreciated the gospel when given to them in its purity. The death of Currer, from yellow fever, was to a great trial to Mrs. Carlton, for she had not only become much attached to her, but had heard with painful interest the story of her wrongs, and would, in all probability, have restored her to her daughters in New Orleans. End of chapter 18